Turn with me, if you would, please, to Acts chapter number 4. Seems like we're moving through Acts pretty quickly. And uh, we today are going to see part of what was a uh, third message. We've seen two messages already that Peter has given most of the time in response to a situation. This is like that, a continuation, really, of what uh, we were looking at last week. In Acts chapter 4, we're going to uh, begin there with verse number 1. And uh, if you'll find your place in your Bible or on your uh, device, encourage you to look at the scripture and we'll keep referring to it. And the Bible says, now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. It's interesting uh, in reading the word for untrained is the word idiot. And it's what literally comes into Greek, idiot, from uh, the way it's transliterated. They're like, these idiots, what do they know? But they realize when they're speaking, these men have been with Jesus and Jesus has made this difference. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside of the uh, out, aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, "What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak." to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way uh, of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man who was over, the man was over forty years old, on whom the miracle of healing had been had been performed. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for its relevance and truth. God, thank you that it's living, it's powerful. Thank you for how it testifies to us of Christ and all that He's done. God, thank you that the things that were said then 
still have meaning to us now this morning. And we pray as we look at your word, God, that you'll make it alive to us as we think about what it's like to have life because of you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought about the message in uh, this uh, passage today, and it really, to me, presents a contrast that we'll see between two ways of thinking about uh, life and God. And, um, you know, as I was thinking about what the people, the Sadducees here, the uh, high priest family, these leaders, the elders that he refers to, uh, possess is religion but not, not grace, not God. What they possess has nothing to do with God's plan at all. And sometimes religion can be like that in people's life. That You can have religion that's actually deadly and poisonous. And that's what we see in the lives of those people. Uh, some of you are like me. You're old enough to remember Jim Jones. I would say the name Jim Jones and you would be, I know exactly who you mean. He popularized in English the idea of drinking the Kool-Aid. That phrase literally came into, uh, it became an idiom in English because he led people into uh, the jungles of Guyana in uh, North, uh, South America. Uh, what He had started a church called the People's Church in San Francisco. It had several locations in California. It was a weird combination of communism and uh, co- communalism and wrong-headedness all the way through, and he attracted a lot of negative attention from the government, which you have to be really a very weird faith system to do in America because most of the time we just leave people alone and let them do their thing. But there was so much abuse in it that he transferred it to Guyana, and he built a compound there and took about a 1,000 people with him to the jungle there. And they say that once everything went sideways, and it went really sideways there, that there was a contingent of representatives from the U.S. who were concerned about their family members being part of a cult. And so a congressman and several others went over, and when they arrived in Guyana... They, uh, th- those people were massacred. All of the people sent to investigate what was happening were killed. But we know that Jim Jones led 909 of his followers to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. Some of them were injected, but all of them committed mass suicide and died there. And they say when they there was a stage on the compound and above it was a sign that said, those who forget the past are destined to repeat it. And we think, well, there, there's so much religious history uh, and abuse that could have affor- informed that community that it's very ironic that there would be a banner like that that would say, those who forget the past are destined to repeat it because they were living in a, a poisonous cycle themselves. And I think about that catastrophe and what religion can become for people. In the place of what they were hoping for. Here's what they really were looking for, ideal community. That's what they were, they were, we've talked about this before, utopia. They were thinking, we have what nobody in the world has, only they found out really they didn't. What they had was poisonous, deadly. And so in the place of what they hoped for, what they ended up with was deadly authoritarianism. And at the heart of the kind of religion that the leaders in Jerusalem at the time of Christ, what they possessed was very similar. The same mindset that would get you to Guyana, drinking Kool-Aid and dying, 
was present in the lives of these religious leaders in some form because when grace is replaced by religion, it is deadly always. And so when we look at this passage together, we'll see that, let me see if I've got my device turned on. My eyes are progressively worse or my glasses one. I've got to look into that. But here's what we see in the passage. It says, first off, we see religion is deadly when it opposes thoughtful investigation. When it opposes thoughtful investigation. If what we profess to believe will not hold up under scrutiny, we need to get rid of it. And they, they would not, uh, the, the disciples had done everything openly. Later on you see Peter. Peter said, or uh, the Apostle Paul says, None of these things was done in a corner. It was all public. It was all all historic reality that could be investigated. That's why in the very beginning in Acts, the apostle uh, or Luke writes to Theophilus, as we remember, and he says, what I'm going to give you is an accurate, accurate account of all the things that began to be taught and done by Jesus. So he's like, what I'm providing for you is historical information that you can investigate. When we look at these leaders, what we find out about them is that they considered the teaching about resurrection particularly disruptive, the, the uh, Sadducees. So when they find out not only once, not, but twice now, Peter has returned to a public location and has preached that Jesus is resurrected, they are incensed, they're furious. They're not going to take it without responding. And so they show up, and we know the context that we saw before was that a man lame from birth, the passage tells us some more information. Now, over 40 years old, this man for 40 years of his life has been crippled, unable to walk. Peter and John encounter him. He's asking for alms. They say, silver or gold have we none, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth. Arise and walk. They lift him up. He begins to leap and shout and worship, regains strength in his feet and ankles. He's still a little wobbly. We saw last week they hold on to him and help him. And now these, these, uh, the Sadducees, the chief priests show up attracted by the fact that here's a movement that has grown from 120 people to 5,000 people really, really rapidly. And they, they hate the idea that this person who we schemed to crucify, you are saying is alive, and people are believing it. Not only they're believing it, but their lives are being powerfully transformed because of that belief, which is what Christianity is in a nutshell. But they saw the Christian movement not in terms of what was true or untrue, but with with what interfered with or assisted their thirst for influence. They didn't care about truth. They didn't care about reality. They cared about power and control and manipulation, which is always what leadership looks like when it goes badly. Always looks like that. And that's what they they were. They didn't care whether this was true or not. They were mired in nepotism, elitism. Their opposition to Christianity was based on politics as much as it was on religion. Religion, especially to the Sadducees, was sort of a side concern. Their main concern was political. They uh, were conspirators in Jesus' death. They also were conspirators with Herod. Some people would call them lackeys. Basically what they did was... They, they uh, 
they cooperated with Herod, who was a puppet of Rome, a local king, an Idumean, not really a Jew, not really loved by the Jews at all, but a local person of influence. They cooperated with him to, to, to have some of the high priest's family executed and replaced them with basically puppets. And so they're all involved in a big scheme that at the heart of it is about power, influence, control. And so when Jesus shows up, they don't care about truth. They care about continuing to be in a position of power. Status quo, that's what they wanted. As little uh, attention attracted by Rome as possible. So that at some level, probably what they want, we, we could admire. Because they wanted a stable country. Who doesn't? Everybody wants stability. What are you willing to uh, give away to get it? That's the question sometimes. And in the most dangerous places in time and history, what's happened is that people have wanted it so badly that they would give away important freedoms. And I don't know, I'm off on a tangent a little bit, but that's what was going on. They wanted to... That what they had at heart was like, we want the status quo because we know the status quo doesn't get people crucified on the side of the road. So let's just purr along here. We don't need Jesus and his followers to make a bunch of uh, noise here. They thought religion was fine as long as it wasn't specific or dogmatic. Guess what the apostles were? Guess what Jesus was? Specific and dogmatic. So they're like, we do not care for this at all. Christianity, when we look at what it says, the reason that people take offense at the Christian message is because it says only Jesus saves. That's what offends people about Christianity. Because the Christian message, we see it in verse 12 here, it's as plain as it can possibly be that the Bible says only Jesus saves. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus saves. So Christianity is interesting in that it is both exclusive and inclusive. I've thought about this a long time. The Bible says, how is it inclusive? Because the Bible says, whoever Calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anybody. Anybody that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how it's inclusive. Any human being, doesn't matter where they come from, their background, rich, poor, what country you're a part of, what nation you're a part of, anybody can receive Jesus. Isn't that wonderful news? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life that's the good news that's the best news it's inclusive anyone can come to Christ it's exclusive only Christ can save that's what the Bible teaches there is not salvation in any other pathway any other name it's only the name of Jesus that saves the Bible says in another place there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death in other words It's true that there are a lot of uh, faith systems and ideas, but the Bible says all those things, while they seem right to people, in the end, when you get to its destination, what you encounter is death. Jesus said, on the other hand, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's life in Christ and only in him. In our culture of religious liberty, arresting people for uh, having an opposing view seems outrageous. 
Like when that, if that ever happens, it becomes big news, right? Waco. What, what happened there? People had some really outlandish ideas that I don't know. I haven't read about it that closely. I know that you, it's rare, rare, rare for anybody to marshal armed forces toward a religious group. You just don't hear of it here. When it happens, it makes the news. There, it was fairly common for religious people to arrest other uh, religious people and to persecute them. And it still happens often in places in the world. But when we hear of it now in our modern ears, it sounds outrageous that these guys were uh, arrested for having a spiritual belief. And sadly, when we look at history, we find that even some Christians at times have misused their authority coercively. You know, the thing that we know is that faith can't be coerced. Nobody can make us, nobody can force you to believe something that you don't believe. You might even say out loud to get to avoid persecution something that you don't believe in your heart. But nobody can make you believe in your heart what you don't believe. And, and yet they're trying to force belief on people through intimidation, violence, and threat as the gospel movement uh, continues to spread. It, that continues to be what you witness as we read the book of Acts. We'll see it again and again, uh, uh, persecution, threats of violence, actual violence, martyrdom. All those things are happening. And so the apostles are passionate about the gospel. They, share, they were passionate about sharing Jesus with, with others, and it attracts opposition. I think about the things that many of us are passionate about today. If you think about yourself, what are you passionate about? I've got the bumper stickers on my car, you know. The Falcons, I'm kind of passionate. That's so sad, really, when I think about it, that I've committed myself, all this passion to mediocrity for all my life. But we're passionate about sports. We're passionate about politics. Ugh. Thanksgiving's coming up. You always see people talk about, hey, please be careful. Don't, you know, talk about politics with your family at Thanksgiving, that kind of thing. But we know we're, we're passionate about things. But how about our passion for Christ? Are we passionate about him? I think about Henry Blackaby wrote an incredible book years ago called Experiencing God. And he, he talks about what most often goes awry for people is like our love relationship with Jesus. Like when, you, when stuff is bad in a community of people or in the lives of anybody, if you dissect it and you get to the central part of what's gone wrong, it is our love relationship with Jesus every single time. When you, when you strip everything else away, all the symptoms are gone, and you get down to what's really wrong, it is our love relationship with Jesus every single time. And, and when we look at these people, there's no question about their love relationship with Jesus, right? It put them into a situation where it invited violent opposition. But also in this passage, when we think about what happens when religion goes uh, badly, it is divorced from compassion. Religion's deadly when it's divorced from compassion. This poor guy who was raised up, this lame man, shouldn't he have been allowed some time to enjoy just being able to walk again? No. Very quickly he is like pulled into this controversy that he probably wanted no part of. He's just there at the temple trying to make a living the only way that he could day after day. And suddenly he's healed and pulled into the center of this argument 
between these these powers. And the religious leaders don't consider the human being at the center of this narrative at all. This made me think about Matthew 23. You should go read Matthew 23 and look at how Jesus treated uh, religious people who didn't have compassion, what he said about them. Now, I'm going to tell you some of the things that he said. But here they missed the point of what was God was doing. It's like, shouldn't they have been excited for this guy who only all his life, all he had known was uh, disability? And all of a sudden, he's liberated. Is that what they're excited about? Is that where their agitation is? No, not at all. It's not what they care about. What they care about, again, is being able to continue to appropriate power for their personal use. They frequently miss the point of what Jesus is doing. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew 23. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, on the outside you look pretty good, but inside you're like a stinking graveyard. That's what Jesus said about these same people. These are the same people, by the way, that we know conspired to have Jesus arrested and crucified. It's the exact same group of people. Jesus called them uh, whitewashed tombs. He said they would strain out a gnat to swallow a camel. He dismissed their made-up Sabbath laws because God made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath. He called them hypocrites, traversing land and sea to proselytize, but making, this is what Jesus said, you make the convert twice as much a child of hell as you are. He said they shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. You don't go in, and you prevent others who are trying to enter. They were scrupulously observant but omitted the weightier issues of justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is what Jesus said. He said you tithe the very mint and uh, the elements of your garden down to the nth degree, but you forgot to love people and be compassionate. And Jesus says, I care much more about your treating people than I do, the way you treat people than I do your scrupulous observation of these religious minutiae. So I care a lot more about that. We know religion has gone bad when it is divorced from compassion. They don't see this human at all. They don't care about him at all. All they can see is their regulations and their rules. And these are the kinds of things that Jesus said. Peter, when he replies to them, when he, he begins politely, doesn't he? You leaders of the people and elders. And, but I'll, verse 9 is informative. He's like, it can't be that the reason that we're being examined is because we healed the helpless person, right? That's how, I would, that's how it sounds to me when I read it. It can't be. That the reason that we're being investigated is because we healed somebody. That's not what this is about, right? But they're like, yeah, actually, this is what that's about. And Peter just starts to preach again. This is the third message, and all of them sound very similar. He asserts that they, these people, he says, I just want to remind you of something. You crucified Jesus, and it didn't work. God raised him up from the dead. He's alive. He's resurrected. He restates for them the, the reality that Christ has been raised and it's the impetus for the rapidly expanding Christian movement. It was impossible to discredit in their time. They could not discredit it. They couldn't discredit this healing. They couldn't discredit the re- resurrection and the fact that God was powerfully at work and they just totally miss all of it. 
In a previous sermon, we saw that he said it was done ignorantly and that Jesus prayed for their forgiveness and that still he appeals to the group they preached to previously to repent and to turn away from their hard-heartedness. And he restated uh, the resurrection and then he adds something new here from the psalm. Psalm uh, 118 verse 22 is what he quotes when he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and it's marvelous in in our eyes. That's the way he, he quotes that psalm. We sing songs sometimes about Jesus as the cornerstone. And it comes from that psalm and it comes, he brings it in here. It was interesting when I was studying that Peter uh, takes the same idea in First Peter, the epistle that he writes, and he brings it out again. And I think, I think I included it, yeah. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He says, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble be, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. I just think that's interesting that again later on when Peter wrote this letter, this epistle, with the same content that's in his sermon comes up in his writing to strengthen believers and he says Jesus is the cornerstone and he is building up a house and so we're what he's building. We're the living stones that he says he's fitting together. All of us who believe on Jesus, he says, I'm making you into my house, my dwelling place. You're his dwelling place. I'm his dwelling place. That's what Paul says also that we saw as he wrote to Corinth. Isn't that a neat idea? We, we mess up what we think churches so often because we, uh, we have to keep up facilities and the painting and doing the things that we do here. But the reality is you, me, we're the church, the people of God. The Spirit of God lives in us. When we think about the temple of God, we're the temple of God. And then when we come together, it's like we're what God intends the church to be, the community the people of faith that he lives in and who, who he is using in the world. And this is the beautiful analogy that he, he uses, but he says, there is no church without Jesus. The resurrected Christ is the cornerstone, and the, he is the reality that holds it all together. You take him away, there's nothing. That's what he's saying to these people in his preaching. He says uh, that when we think about Jesus... And who he is here, that he is just preaching to them again this same gospel reality that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, that God was saying this all the way through Scripture and he's continued to say it. To, and and we, we think about what Christians believe. We believe in religious tolerance, but we don't believe that all faith systems are equally true or valid. We believe in tolerance. We don't believe in, uh, that all uh, religious systems are equally true and valid because to do so would be to not deny the words of Jesus and the apostles. And so we're going to believe Jesus and the apostles and we're going to hold to that reality. So religion's deadly when it gets divorced from compassion. You end up with the kind of nonsense that we see in this passage of violent persecution and threats. 
But religion is deadly also when it crowds out obedience to God. Peter comes to the right question. He's like, given this scenario, what's right? We obey you or we obey God? And he keeps saying that, and he's like, I can tell you what we're going to do. We're going to obey God. The religious leaders do not, uh, When in this story, it's hard to remove this the impact of the lame man from the narrative. And why would you want to do that anyway? It's like a beautiful uh, story, and we've seen many others because when Jesus came, as we see, healing occurred because God was with us, and God was uh, confirming his word among his people. But it highlights the hardness of their hearts that when what, all they can think about is like maintaining something but not helping anyone. When Lazarus was raised from the grave, this is fascinating. I really hadn't thought about that. But when you associate it with this, you see these are the same people, right? The chief priests plotted to do what? Put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Like Lazarus had died. We know that story, John chapter 11. Jesus goes to his tomb, and he calls him out. Lazarus come out. Lazarus comes out. They unwrap the grave clothes, take him off. He's alive and free after being dead and in the tomb for four days. What's their response to that? Do they go, wow, we should go believe in Jesus. That's what they should have said. That's not what they say. They say, you know what we should do? We should destroy the evidence. Let's kill Lazarus. That way people will stop going to Jesus. Amazing. It's amazing how wrongheaded they are. How much they continue to hold on to the wrong thing instead of releasing it, which is basically the same way that uh, obstacles work for people today. We may not be acting in exactly the same way as they are, but listen, when we don't yield to Jesus as Lord, the motivation when you get really underneath it is exactly the same. We're holding on to control. We're not willing to say yes to his, his being Lord. And the only people that come to him are the people that say yes to him being Lord. That's the only people that get to Jesus are the ones that lay down their rebellion and surrender and say yes to him. And we would think that would be the easiest thing in the world, but it's really not for uh, so many people. But it's what God is calling us to, is to that yielding and surrendering. And people go to such extreme measures. And and I think about it in, in my life and lives of other people until I was willing to say yes to Jesus. It's like all the stuff we put up with in our life. All the stuff that I let be an impediment, all that, and how much garbage it was. It was almost all garbage. And you realize when you put it down that you find the life that you were created to have. While the apostles are outside awaiting their fate, the religious rulers are inside missing the point. They've done a notable miracle, shouldn't we believe? Nobody says that in this room. They face a crisis of belief with ever-hardening hearts. An 18th century philosopher named Montesquieu said all forms of tyranny depend on the ability of the government to keep people afraid. R.C. Sproul said that's why there are purges and secret police and mass uh, executions with this sort of regime. And of course, modern history, you if you read very much at all, you see this over and over again. Isaac Asimov said violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. We don't know what else to do. 
let's just send out the police and persecute these people, send out the temple authorities. They didn't have truth or reason on their side, so they resorted to threats and violence and persecution. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers of the second century, said the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. So even though they were violently persecuting and killing Jesus' followers, all that happened is it confirmed to people the truth that Jesus was exactly who they were claiming that he was. This opera say, should we listen to you or God? Well, in your own life, you'll probably face crossroads and threats based on social, uh, being able to fit in socially or ethically sometimes. Like if you don't cut this corner, you don't fit in, you're going to face some uh, persecution. All we can say is like, you have to do whatever you do. We're just going to keep being obedient to Christ. We're going to keep following the way. Being a witness to Jesus is inseparable from being a Christian. They're identical. Once you're a follower of Jesus, you're a witness to Jesus. Even if you're poor at it, even if we do it, you know, not even if we do it begrudgingly, we're witnesses in our life. And these leaders, falsely so-called, were committed to doing what was personally and politically stabilizing, but the disciples were committed to following Jesus. And uh, this passage is very helpful to people when we think about it. The Bible says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. There are going to be times in our life when we're tempted to be intimidated away from truth. Sometimes it happens inside of churches. I know pastors that are comforted by this passage all the time. Fear of man. If I don't follow what people think I should be doing, then I'm in trouble financially or vocationally or whatever. That's just a poor way of thinking about life. Fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. One thing that 60 years of life on earth has taught me is that God has my back. As long as I'm doing what God wants me to do. If I'm not, you, you know, I don't deserve for God to have my back. But if you and I are obeying God, we can trust that he has got us. And that's a very comforting thought that we see in their life. We might think religion is a good thing, right? That's what I thought. But not necessarily. It depends on what we mean by it. If we mean God is real, he loves us, we can know him according to his self-revelation, then yes, that is good. But if we mean by religion a system that allows people to be viewed as a means to an end and bears no resemblance to what we know about God based on Jesus, then no, that never results in any good. That is fraudulent, unhelpful, and an imitation. In this passage in James, he says, Religion that God our Father, or a pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And, of course, we know that faith means more than that because it's specific about Jesus and who he is, his death and burial and resurrection and his, his, uh, all the things that he taught and said. But it, when you think about what religion is, it is concern and compassion for others and applying truth helpfully to ourself. In some sense, that's what it means. That's what James highlights here. Authentic faith is inseparable from grace. Grace transforms our personality. Godly love conditions our ways with others, how we act toward other people. 
not always tempted to act in the right way, but grace becomes the final word for Christians. And if that's absent, there's good reason for evaluation and concern. It might be that what we've uh, subscribed to is deadly religion. Hopefully not. I hope here's, here are some things that are actually true about our faith, that it's life-giving. I hope your faith is life-giving. I hope your faith is eye-opening. I hope your faith is transformational. I hope your faith is characterized by grace that rubs off on the people around you. I hope your faith is full of hope. It has the kind of hope that circumstances can't destroy. Even when things aren't going well, we still have hope because it's grounded in God and his promises and his ways. I hope you have the kind of faith that's a witness to others that they look at it and they want it too. I hope you have the kind of faith that allows you to see uh, with with uh, a new new eyes, see the world the way that God's made it, and that's full of mercy and good fruit. I think that's the kind of faith that these disciples had when they did something good to someone that, and they knew that it was re- related to Jesus. That was the focal point for them was to use it as a way of helping other people experience the the grace and the goodness of God. I want to pray for us. We will uh, have a time of commitment, a song to conclude our service. I'll stand up front. Always am glad to pray with you, to help you and encourage you in your faith. Also, anytime, you know, uh, we publish the numbers of myself and elders, uh, our cell phone information, and uh, we're always available, and we want to shepherd our congregation well by loving and helping uh, folks. So, you may not want to come forward and talk to me today in this time, but you may want to talk to us sometime. And uh, God has given us to this congregation to serve and to help. And so hope you'll keep that in mind. We're going to stand together as we sing. I want to pray if there's a need for prayer or commitment. It may be that you want to become a part of this fellowship today. There are steps involved in that. One of them is to uh, to connect with the congregation. If you've never been baptized as a follower of Christ, you can ask and we'll start that process for you, however God is working and and leading in your life. God, I'm grateful that we see in Scripture your heart is kind. Your ways are benevolent and good. God, mercy uh, characterizes your life and pours out of you down to us. The Word says that you're full of mercy. And the word says that that mercy, that grace has uh, come to us as a free gift that you've made in Jesus. Change us, God. Help us, even day by day, even those of us that profess you, that say, man, we struggle just to live out the calling in our life, that you'll chip away at the parts of us that aren't like Jesus, God, that you'll refine us and make us more and more all the time like the people of God that you intend us to be. Bless and help, we pray, as we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.